Amen. Well, again, a very uh, fitting song uh, to where we're going to be this morning in our series. This is week 11 now of uh, the story of the Bible in 16 verses. And we've been looking at the overarching uh, storyline of the Bible in 16 verses. And and, uh, a lot of times you you walk in, you're like, oh yeah, we're talking about Jesus. And we do that every week, uh, regardless of the storyline. Jesus is the hero of the entire story. And so it's usually pretty easy uh, to get to Jesus, regardless of the text. But we want to kind of look at these 16 major themes throughout the Bible. And so we're going to continue with that. Again, those of you who don't know me, my name is Brian, uh, lead pastor here at Hope Lower Town. And uh, yeah, we're just going to jump, jump right in. Last week, I started off by asking the question, have you ever, um, what, 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 what have got you excited about waiting for something, right? Waiting for uh, whatever it may be, this next stage in life or waiting for a vacation or, or whatever it may be. But, but this week is kind of a different shift, a different tone and tenor that's going to happen this morning um, where it's kind of the same question that what have you been waiting for, but what have you been waiting for to end, <laughs> right? What, what is something that's going on in your life that you're like, I just wish this could be over. I, I, I'm sick of it. I'm tired of it. I'm exhausted by it. Uh, and it could be any number of things, right? It could be the school, uh, right? Just, I just can't wait to be done with school. Or maybe it's a work project that you're on. You've just been sinking all your time and effort into it. Um, uh, a, lo- a lot of weddings that I do, I, I make the joke is when you, when you work in, um, I don't know, service industries or you work with people, uh, your job never really ends, right? If you're in sales, you're never like, my job is done for the day. Like, nope it's going to happen. It's like Groundhog Day. You know what I mean? It just keeps happening. You don't really ever get to stand back. And I've mentioned this why I like tinkering with my Jeep because you, you fix a light bulb and you're like, it's finished. And then the next day it breaks again. So you're like, okay, it's not finished. Um, but there's certain things that you like to look back. And I, so I make the joke at, the, at weddings that our premarital counseling is about to end, right? Uh, but then I say, but then marital counseling is going to start and that's a whole different conversation. But premarital counseling is almost over, right? You got about 10 minutes. This thing's over. Uh, maybe it's a, a TV series you've been invested in. You're, you just want it to, to, to wrap up and you want it to conclude. And usually when series end, they just, because they got canceled, they never really end well. Uh, there's no resolution. Uh, could be something like that. But I want to focus on something that might be a little bit longer. Something a little bit more of a dark nature. That might be like a, a pain. Maybe you have some kind of physical ailment. I have struggled most of my life with some pretty intense tooth pain. I feel like I'm always at the dentist. Uh, all my life's like, you never go to the dentist. <laughs> That's why your teeth hurt. That's like, yeah, but I'm always there when I do need to go. Um, and uh, it could be tooth pain. It could be just the idea of being, of being pregnant. Uh, the whole nine-month cycle, it could be the labor pains. When is this going to end? It could be the pain of a loss. Right, of somebody who you lost and this pain of like, is this ever going to dissipate? Is this feeling ever going to go, go away? I always think of the song by Coldplay. Uh, is it called uh, Lights? Lights? What is the name of that song? Uh, where they say, tears come streaming down your face. When you lose something, you fix you. It's a great song. It's very sad. It's a sad song, right? Streams are going to come down your face when you lose something you can't replace. Right? That's just this, this pain. Is this, is this pain ever going to end? Is it ever going to be, ever going to be finished? And so this has been where, where we've been. And I, and I just briefly want to do this. This is, when you talk about hermeneutics, this is a hermeneutic. 
Uh, this is how we read our Bible, especially here at Hope, that we're going to read the Bible chronologically left to right. That's what we do it, as, at least as, as an American English reader. We're going to open up the Bible, and it's going to be Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God. And, and we're going to read it then to the right, from left to right. But we know how the story ends. We know that Jesus wins. He's going to come back as the hero. Everything is then about him. So we put on our Jesus lenses, and we can go back, and we can read Jesus into the story rightly, the way that these authors, maybe not fully knowing, but we're talking about Jesus. We're talking about the Messiah. And so looking at creation and then getting then to looking at the lens of that God, God creates the world, but then looking at the lens of Christ and seeing that he was there with him. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And that God creates human beings. And likewise, Christ is also going to take on flesh and he's going to become a human being. The fall, you have Adam and Eve falling into sin. Adam, our first brother, falls miserably, but Jesus doesn't. And this just goes on and on, this redemption promise in Genesis chapter 3, 15, that he is going to crush the head of the serpent and Abraham. All nations are going to be blessed through you. Through Abraham? No, through the Messiah. Judah, this awful human being is going to, your descendants are going to be kings. Jesus is going to be a descendant of Judah. They have this Passover lamb and this blood that's going to be spilt on the, on the wood. And then we see Jesus, who is the great Passover lamb, the law and all of its requirements that people just suffer underneath the law. It's just not good enough. I can't be good enough. And Jesus comes and he lives under the law and he fulfills the law so that we who can't can be free from the law. And we have King David, again, not a good guy. Hey, we're in the promised land. We got a king. We're good, we're good to go now. Wrong. The kingdom's going to be split. It's going to fall into enemy hands. And, but Jesus is going to be one who's going to sit on the throne. And we have this suffering servant in Isaiah. Really, the Messiah, this promised one, the son of man, the son of God is going to suffer? No. And Jesus is like, yeah, that's me. And Paul did this sermon talking about Peter. We're going to look a little bit more about Peter, not understanding this concept of a suffering servant. And they're looking at Ezekiel, right? These dry bones are going to come back to life. This is Israel. And then ultimately culminating in Jesus and his resurrection, but we're not there yet. And then last week, looking at fulfillment, right? And the fullness of time had come. Jesus is here. I now am here. I am the kingdom of God. It's not about some land. It's not about some geographical location. It's not about restoring power to Israel. It's about the kingdom of God, which is fulfilled and advanced one soul at a time. But this week, though, a little bit different take. We're going to be looking at the cross. So what can we learn from the cross? We just sang it. It is finished. I know that it is finished from John chapter 19, verse 30. And so that's going to be the title of the sermon, nothing fancy. It is finished. John 19, verse 30. Before we get there, and actually we're not going to get to that text until like right at the very end of today, because I want to explain this, because I, what we could do this morning is we could just focus right in on the cross. What happened on the cross? What, what was going through Jesus's mind, if we could try to figure that out? What, what was he experiencing pain? How did he actually die? Why was he crucified? We, we could go through this whole list and focus on the cross and what it means and, and everything about it. But yet, I think that when we zoom in on that, I think we're, we're missing the point of this sermon series, which is to take a step back and say, but how does the cross fit into the rest of the biblical storyline? That the cross is essential. It's, it's the biggest point of the whole thing. And yet, 
where do we see that in the text? Where do we see that in the Old Testament? Um, there's a story uh, I made. I don't think I've ever talked about this before, but you know my guy, R.C. Sproul, um, before he died, R.I.P., that he was teaching a class and he, uh, uh, he, he, was, he needed a Bible. He didn't have one. And so he said, someone hand me a Bible. And he was teaching a seminary class and someone tossed him a, 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 a little booklet and he opened it and it was uh, the New Testament and the Psalms and Proverbs. It's kind of like these little New Testament books. And he threw it back and he said, no, I asked for a Bible, right? <laughs> he was saying, this whole point was the Bible isn't just the New Testament. It's the whole thing. And it's amazing. And the most of the Bible, the Old Testament, is screaming Jesus. And so I don't want to just zoom in on this as much as fun as that is fun. It's, it's, a, really, it's a pastor's way of talking about the cross. Not fun. <laughs> as as uh, good of a sermon as that would have been. Here we go. It's not what I want to do this morning. I want to take a step back and let's jump into the Old Testament and see if Jesus really was the Messiah that Israel had been waiting for. And so I'm going to talk about this passage next week, but it, it's helpful in Luke chapter 24. Jesus said this in beginning to the narrative here of Jesus talking to two individuals. It says, in the beginning from Moses and from all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, things concerning himself. So Jesus talks through the Bible, talks through the Old Testament. There is no New Testament written when this is happening. And Jesus goes to two disciples and he's like, let me open your eyes to who I really am. And what does he use? He uses Moses and the prophets. He uses the Old Testament to get to himself. So it's kind of what I want to do. Just a simple outline looking at Moses and the prophets. Does Moses predict the crucifixion of Jesus? Now, it's called Moses because Moses most likely wrote the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It's what the Jewish community calls the Pentateuch. It's their, their sacred scriptures of Moses. But does Moses talk about Jesus, does he talk about this crucifixion? What's going on here? A little bit of context. We're looking at Numbers chapter 21. Israel has just been miraculously set free from slavery in Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. They're going to the promised land. And they get to the promised land and they go, nope, we can't do it. So God's like, you're gonna all gonna die in the wilderness. That's not okay. I just did all of this stuff for you. And now you don't trust me on the finish line? Now you don't actually think I can do this? So they go into the wilderness and they're out there and they're suffering and they're dying and they're not eating and they're not drinking. And so Jesus provides, or God, Yahweh provides water. He provides manna for them. This weird stuff, they call it manna, which means what is it? Falls on the ground every morning. They go and they gather it and they can either boil it or they can bake it, uh, right? So either it's gonna be, turn out to be some kind of bagel or some kind of uh, a donut, right? It's just like, it's, that's how it is, right? And then they're just, they're just, they got these yum-yums that they don't even have to go look for. It's just there. It's just there. So this is what's going on. In Numbers chapter 21, it says, verse four, they traveled from Mount Horror along the route to the Red Sea, right? They're kind of going back. They're in this area in the wilderness to go around Edom. But the people grew impatient on the way and they spoke against God and against Moses and said, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? Were you not listening to the word of God? Did he say, I'm going to set you free and then I'm going to kill you all? No, I'm going to take you to the promised land. 
Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no bread. There is no water. And we detest this miserable food. Talking about manna. Talking about God providing for them. And then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them and they bit the people. And many Israelites died completely needlessly because of their murmuring. And it's like an onomatopoeia. Murmur, 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 murmur. Right? It's just what it sounded, just complaining against God. Is onomatopoeia, is that the right? Is that the right? Like zoom, bing, bang, murmur. Okay. And the people came to Moses and said, right now, now after God's judgment on his people for complaining against him, setting them free, the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray that the Lord will take the snakes away from us. Now here, Yahweh could have just said, fine, snakes are gone. They've repented. But instead he said, no, I want you to have a little bit of faith. I want, to, I want you to show that you have a, just a little bit of faith. This is very easy. And the Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. And anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. And so Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. And then anyone who was bitten by a snake looked at the bronze snake and they lived. And how easy is this? You've been bitten by a poisonous snake. You've seen friends and family die. You go to Moses, you're like, hey, we need help. And this is what has happened. They just make some bronze snake and lift it up on a pole and a stick. And so if you just look at it, you'll be safe. You'll be healed. You won't have to worry about this serp or this, these serpents biting you anymore. You're not gonna, all you, it's all you got to do. It's so easy. So then what's this have to say about Jesus? Well, Again, a little bit of context, fast forwarding big time in the story here, getting all the way to John chapter three, we get this spiritual leader, Nicodemus. He is a religious leader, a Pharisee, a teacher of the law. He knows the Bible. He knows the Old Testament. He probably has Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy memorized, committed to memory. And Jesus is making a name for himself as a teacher. And Nicodemus, though, is afraid of the religious leaders. So he comes to Jesus at night, which is where we get, I know I've made this joke before, our first Nick at night. I know. I didn't know Nick at night was still a thing. Anyone know that? Does anyone still watch Nick at night? Yeah, well, your kids can. I didn't know that was still a thing. It was a thing when I was a kid in the 80s. And it still is. 2009 to present. That could have, this could be 10 years old. Who knows, right? What happens here, though? Nicodemus comes to Jesus and says, Right? He's like, how can this be? How, how does one actually get saved? And Jesus says, you are Israel, Israel's teacher, Jesus said. And do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we will testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. Right? That you, this, you people, meaning the Israelites, that... Moses and the prophet, everything has been screaming about this Messiah. And I've shown up and I have said, I am he. Let me prove it to you. And, and, and all of you religious people are going, no, no, it can't be you. You're just Joseph's son. You're just the son of a carpenter. We know you, like you can't, you cannot be the Messiah. That's not how the Old Testament played. It's going to be a king who's going to vindicate us. He's going to set us free from exile. And he's going to kick out the Romans. And he's going to establish Israel as the king in the kingdom. So it can't be you. He's saying, you are not listening. You're not accepting our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things. And you do not believe. 
How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. We've been talking about that phrase the last couple of weeks. It's Jesus' favorite title for himself in prophecy from Ezekiel. And just as Moses, here it is. This is Jesus' words. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness so that the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Right, this isn't necessarily an image, and it is maybe metaphorically, that there could be some analogies of being physically lifted up on the cross or physically lifted up on a pole, which I think is for sure there. I think Jesus knew that his means of death was going to be crucifixion. There's a scene in The Chosen. I know we've talked about that a few times. If you don't watch it, it's a really good, really, really great TV program. TV program? Who talks like that? <laughs> it's like, whatever. It's an app for free. You can watch it. Uh, it's a really great show. There's a scene though when Jesus is walking in to a city into Jerusalem and he sees some people being crucified on a cross and he just pauses and he just looks up at them. All right, what, what's going through his mind? I think he, he knows that something's coming. He said, no, the son of man must be lifted up. But what's the analogy? What's the one for one here? That simple little act of faith of looking up and seeing this bronze serpent, how easy it was to be set free from deliverance of these serpents, that now looking up on the cross, I'm gonna be set free from the serpent, from the one whose head is being crushed. That's Jesus. You don't believe Moses and the prophets? I'm it's all here. It's all here. It's all about me, Jesus. So what about the prophets? Before I get into the prophets, I have a question here because I think it's very applicable to this next section is what does wrath mean? Are we talking about some wrath and looking at the wrath in the Old Testament? And sometimes we, people will do this. It's like, oh, and I, I don't know if I believe the God of the Old Testament, just wrath and death and destruction. Then Jesus comes and, and something's changed. Yeah, something did change, but what is it? So what comes to mind when we think of wrath? Usually not good things. Uh, I remember uh, in systematic theology when I was an intern eight some years ago. Um, I also teach that class. You guys can sign up for that one. Sunday night. Nope, Thursday nights with Paul. Wrath. I remember a, a friend of mine, though, was like, I hate that word. I cannot stand that word wrath. It, it conjures up so many bad things. I think of my dad just flying off the handle, right? He'd always say, That's, it reminds me of my dad. Is that what wrath means? Is wrath just someone who's bigger and more powerful just losing it? Is that what wrath means? If that's what wrath means, well, then I got a problem with God too, as should you. I remember, um, <laughs> remember when I was back in the day playing football, it was my junior year, and we had this ridiculously long drive uh, from, from Watertown, Wisconsin, up to somewhere in North Dakota. It was like a 16-hour drive. And listen, we weren't a very good football team, and we would drive 16 hours, and we would annihilate this team. Like, it just wasn't even fun. I mean, football's fun. It wasn't fun uh, because we just, it was the drive. The drive just drained you. You knew you were going to get there and destroy this team and then drive all the way home. It's very interesting. Not very fun. Well, when you're driving for that long, you start getting creative with what you're going to do to entertain yourselves. And so the football team, we started playing a game uh, called Assassination, where you would all kind of like someone would get a little piece of paper that would have a little dot on it or something, and they were the assassin. And so you had everyone on the bus 
kind of looking at each other. And the way you would assassinate was you would try to subtly wink at someone. And if you winked at them, they died. And you had to try to vote on who the assassin was. Okay, does that make sense? And we're doing this. Just a bunch of, bunch of college guys, football team, and a bus. The defense, at least, was on this, on this bus. And we're, we're all winking at each other, right? And we're, we're trying to play this game. And we are dying laughing. We're having the time of our lives. And our head coach, Terry Price, gets up there. And he just starts screaming. I mean, Terry was a, some of you know him. He knew him. And he, he, he was a very calm man. But man, he, for whatever reason, had some wrath. And I saw he was like, you guys, quit your wrestling. You guys, we're trying to sleep up. And I don't know if we woke him up and it just like, that just snapped, right? And then we had to like get, when we got like before the game, he's making us do push-ups and stuff. And it's like, coach, we probably shouldn't be doing this right now. Is that what we think of when we think of wrath? Just someone just snapping. This new trend that's going on right now, at least on, on TikTok, I've seen it a few times, is looking at AI that you can use AI filters and you can type something into AI. And so, um, uh, so the artificial intelligence, they, it's making art now, but you got to give it some direction. And so I just typed in the word wrath and this is what, what popped up, right? Kind of this evil looking cloud or something or what exactly is going on. So I thought I'd get a little bit more specific. So the one on the left there, um, I tried to type cup of wrath, um, but instead I accidentally typed cup or wrath. <laughs> and so am I looking at a mug or is that evil inside the mug? I think it's actually kind of a cool picture. The second one, then I switched to cup of wrath and I kind of maybe see a cup and I see maybe some weird person's soul being sucked into a straw. I don't know exactly what's going on there. And so then I changed it to grapes of wrath, which the AI took quite literally and has a giant grape seeming like an asteroid ready to destroy the earth, right? It's just a very interesting image, right? That came up. And so this is apparently a computer's understanding of wrath. Doesn't seem very pleasant, I can tell you that, whatever's going on. How about a definition? All right, can we redefine the word that would help us fit a God of love? I don't want a God of wrath. It doesn't fit with what I know about Jesus. So how does this work? So if you look it up right now, this, is, this actually shocked me. If you look up the definition of wrath, it's a noun, literary device, humorous. This is the first word that comes up. I'm sure us millennials and a Gen Z, apparently we won. We, we did it. We changed the definition of wrath. It means extreme anger, sure, but chiefly used for humorous or rhetorical effect. He hit his pipe for fear of incurring his father's wrath. Ha 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 ha. It's funny. What? That's not what wrath is, right? If you look up the, the older version of of Webster's Dictionary, strong, full, vengeful anger or indignation. That's wrath. But yet that simple definition of Dex Dexter, Dexter? Is that right? Dictionary? Webster's. Webster's. I was like, that's not right. Dexter's laboratory. That's not Dexter's whatever. Webster's Dictionary, right? It changed, right? And it used to be something more, but is it is, it sounds like this, right? Strong, vengeful anger, indignation. Well, that, that, that sounds like wrath. That's, it sounds like somebody snapping and losing it on somebody. I love um, what this one commentary, this book says, RVG Tasker, probably never heard of him, but his book, Wrath of God, says this. The Bible teaches that the wrath of God is his settled. His settled, right? There's, there's no argument 
there, there's no debate. Uh, there, there's no trying to like, oh, I'm going to, well, I don't want to pay that much. I'm going to pay this much. There's no negotiation happening here. It is settled. It is his settled and holy antagonism. Right? That he is so above us in his holiness and pure and unapproachable, ineffable light is how he's described in scripture. That's who he is. It is his settled, unnegotiable holiness and antagonism toward what? Sin. It's towards the sin. And this is a cardinal doctrine that his wrath is going to be poured out on sin, which is going to result in it being poured out on sinners. But it's the sin that he's after. Why is this important? Well, what do the prophets say? So now let's look at this, Jeremiah 25, 15 through 16. It says, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel said to me, so again, Jeremiah, just a prophet speaking the words of God to his people. He says, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send it you drink it. And they shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending among them right? This cup of wrath isn't a good thing. It's not just some tasty juice that these people are drinking on. And he's saying, Jeremiah, I want you to go to all these nations. And he's going to list them in the next paragraph, which I'm just going to skip over for time's sake. Then he continues and he says, then tell them, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, drink, get drunk and vomit and fall and rise no more because the sword I will send among you but if they refuse to take the cup from your hand and drink it, tell them, this is what the Lord Almighty says. You must drink it. You don't have a choice in this. Non-negotiable. See, I am beginning to bring disaster on the city that bears my name and you indeed go unpunished. I'm gonna judge my own people. I'm gonna judge my chosen group, the Israelites, people I've made covenants with, that they're gonna be my people forever. And if I'm punishing them for their sin. Do you, think, do you think you're different? No, sin doesn't go unpunished. So then continuing, you will not go unpunished for I am calling down a sword on all who live on the earth, declares the Lord Almighty. Now prophesy all these words against them and say to them, the Lord will roar from on high and he will thunder from his holy dwelling and roar mightily against his land. He will shout like those who tread on grapes, shout against all who live on the earth. The tumult will result in the sounds, resound to the end of the earth and the Lord will bring charges against the nations and he will bring judgment on all mankind and put the wicked to the sword, declares the Lord. But that's, that's dark, it's heavy. That's wrath, indignant against sin. He has to, he cannot do anything other than to punish sin. And Isaiah 51, continuing, awake, awake, rise up, Jerusalem, a different prophet now. You who have drunk from the hand of the Lord, the cup of his wrath, you who have been drained to its dregs, the goblet that makes people stagger. This is not a good cup. So then what's this have to do with Jesus? Going to Matthew chapter 20, verse 17 says this. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem and on the way he took the 12 aside and said to them, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man, there's that, that title again that he likes using, the son of man 
will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, right? So Jesus knows it's crucifixion. That's clearly what's going to happen. How does he know that? Is it just because he's God? No, I think he's, he's a, he knows his Bible. And he knows that the servant, the servant of God, the Messiah, the anointed one, is going to suffer and die. But he knows that his people, the Israelites, can't kill him. But he knows the Gentiles can't, right? He's just connecting the dots here. And on the third day, he'll be raised to life. What's interesting is, this isn't the first time Jesus says this. I think this is the third time that he's going to use this same kind of phrase. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die. The first time he's talking with Peter, and, and I know Paul probably talked to this a couple weeks ago, but he's talking with, with Peter. And he's going around and he's grown in popularity. And he says, who, who do you say that I am? And he's like, well, some say that you're a prophet. Some say you're John the Baptist. And he's like, no, 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 no. Peter, I want to know who do you say that I am? He says, ah, you are the son of God. And Jesus turns him and he says, yes, Peter. And on this bedrock of truth, this unmovable truth, that's what I'm going to build my church on. And it's not going to be shaken. The gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Nothing's going to happen. And the next phrase Jesus says is this, but here's what has to happen first. I need to die. And Peter's like, whoa, 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 Jesus, you are not going to die. And what does Jesus say? He goes from upon this rock, I'm going to build my church. Peter, you're going to be big. You're going to be a big guy. You're going to be kind of a big name to all of a sudden, get behind me, Satan. What? Why, why would Jesus tell Peter, get behind me, Satan? We just talked about this a couple weeks ago because he directly goes against the word of God, right? Adam and Eve, they're in the garden. Serpent comes up. Serpent loves saying this. The devil loves just twisting the word of God. But did God really say that you would die? Yeah, he did. And then he goes into the wilderness with Jesus. And once you say, hey, Jesus, if you're the son of God, I want you to turn these stones into bread. If I just got baptized and I heard God say out loud, you are my son. And now here you are saying, if you're the son of God. And so Jesus is saying, the son of man, I must suffer and die. And Peter says, no, you're not. Get behind me, Satan. You don't know what you're talking about. I believe the word of God. And so here he is again, Jesus saying this phrase, the son of man must die. It says, and then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons. This is James and John, sons of thunder, kneeling down and asked a favor of him. What is it that you want? He asked, and he said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other on the left in your kingdom. Again, still thinking a very physical, literal kingdom. That will happen, but it's not here yet. And it's not our job to make it a physical kingdom. That's Jesus's job. And he says, she says, when you're seated on your throne, can I have one of my sons on your right and on your left? And this was a, a custom thing in ancient. This is a, maybe a better image of the Last Supper that Jesus kind of sit at the head of the table and whoever's sitting there in this image at his right and his left, the position of right is a position of power and authority and anointing, but the position of the left side is also really important as a special guest, but it's not as powerful as the right. And that's what they're asking. Jesus is like, I'm going to die. And they're like, oh, hey, hey, can we have dibs, right? Can we call shotgun on the whole kingdom ruling thing? Because that would be really cool. I love Jesus' response here. He says, you don't know what you're asking. 
you have no idea what you're talking about. And Jesus said to them, to James and John, can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? Can you drink the wrath of God, the indignation towards sin? Can you drink that? We can. <laughs> what are you? No, you can't. And Jesus said to them, I think in a very humble way, prophetically, he says, you will indeed drink from this cup. You're going to be martyred. And James, you're, gonna, you're about to lose your head to King Herod. He's about to kill you the same way that he's going to kill me. You're going to be killed for your faith. John, they're going to try to kill you. They're going to boil you in some oil, but for some reason it's not going to work. And you're going to survive. You're going to live as a slave in Patmos for the rest of your life. You're going to drink of this cup. But to sit at my right hand or the left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those to whom my father, to whom they have been prepared by my father. So we're going to fast forward. This is now the night he's going to be betrayed. This is the night he's going to be crucified. And Jesus goes out into this garden, this garden of Gethsemane that he would regularly go to with the disciples to pray. And Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane and he said to them, sit here. Well, I go over there and pray. He took Peter and James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. He knows what's coming. He knows the pain and the suffering and the agony that's coming, but not just the physical pain. He knows the wrath of God is going to be poured out on him. And he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell on his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, here it is. May this cup be taken from me. This is the imagery that Jesus is giving, that this, this whole language used in the Old Testament in more passages than what I read this morning about this cup of the wrath of God. He's saying, this is me. And now I need to drink this cup and I'm the only one who's capable of being able to drink this cup. Yet, not as I will, but as you will. God, I want your will to be done. If there's any other way, please, let's figure it out. But there's not. And then we turned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, watch and pray that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And he went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it is possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more to, be, to pray a third time saying the same thing. And then he returned to the disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come. The son of man is delivered into the hands of the sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. And what happens then in those next moments is Peter and the rest of the disciples still thinking physical rule and reign. Now, now, Jesus, I think you're misunderstanding this story. Jesus, this is where we do it. This is where we take over. This is where we fight back. And Peter takes his sword and he cuts off the ear of a servant of the high priest and everything that they know about the Messiah and they've read and they've studied is that there's going to be bloodshed. All right, Jesus is about to fix everything. He's about to kick the Romans out and blood is going to be spilt. But Jesus says, not that blood, not like that. 
Jesus commands Peter, put your sword away. Here it is again. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? Peter, you got this wrong. Get behind me, Satan. Put it away. You're trying to stop the ultimate plan of God for the redemption of all people through my blood. And I'm the only one who can do it. I got to drink this cup. Skipping forward just a couple of verses in John chapter 19, it says, later, knowing that everything had now been finished and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. And a jar of wine vinegar was there and they soaked it in a sponge and put the sponge in a stalk of hyssop plant and lifted it up to Jesus' lips. And when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. Right, going back to what we talked about at the beginning of this sermon. How many, how many times do we get to say that? It's, it's finished. It's done. Is Jesus talking about his pain and his suffering? No. No. Because he knows he's going to come back in glory. He's not talking about, oh, finally, I get, to, I get to just be done with this life. No, it's finished. My work here is done. The wrath of God has been poured out on me and me alone for anyone who would just put their faith in me, the one lifted up on the cross, it seems so simple, and it is. And he says it is finished. No more law. No more trying to earn my way into the presence of God. It's finished. No more slavery to sin. You're free. You're free to follow Jesus, free to follow God. You no longer have to give in to sin. On Monday mornings, I know I've shared this, we have a like kind of a preacher's meeting and, and uh, I don't remember who it was. One of the other pastors, someone in the meeting just had talked about this book by Jerry Bridges. And I think it's about, about holiness. And um, he, he talks, uses this phrase that we gotta, we gotta get rid of the language of victory, right? Of like, I'm, I'm fighting this, this sin and I, and I won the victory or I just can't get victory over this thing. By Jesus saying it is finished, he's saying, no, you can't. You can't win the victory. I already did. It's finished. You now have the freedom to choose because every single time we sin, it is always a choice. I've talked about this. Our free will as human beings is always my strongest inclination at any given moment. And in that moment of choice, I look at Jesus and I go, yeah, you're not good enough, man. This is more satisfying. And we choose the sin and therefore we choose the suffering. Jesus says, it's finished. I won the victory. I want to finish with this quote from Tasker. He says, the Bible teaches the wrath of God is this settled and holy antagonism towards sin. And this is a cardinal doctrine. In the New Testament, propitiation. What is that? Fancy word for saying, I have been forgiven. How? What the... What, uh, I almost called him an apostle. Jeez, I'm borderline in trouble here. Uh, what Martin Luther, not an apostle, uh, what Martin Luther calls the great exchange. This great thing happens where my sinfulness, the deserving, the deserving of God's wrath on me is given to Jesus. I take off my filthy rags and I give to Jesus and he takes his righteousness and he cloaks me in his righteousness. It's this great exchange. That's propitiation. It is the result of God's love. This is tied up in God's wrath. And he himself provides it. 
the son suffering his wrath in himself, this is love. How can we make amends with the wrath of God and with the love of God, Jesus? At the cross, this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. He loved us so much that he sent his son to exchange our filthiness and our weakness and our sin and our deserving of wrath, takes it upon himself and gives us righteousness. That's love with respect to our sins. That's love. That's love and wrath. It's the same thing. You cannot separate the two. So today in gospel application, it is finished. We can look at this and we can say, Jesus died for my sins. It's something we talk about every week. Jesus died for my sins. Uh, Pastor Drew from Columbia Heights, he was talking about, he was at this camp uh, this last week and he was teaching there. And they're like, hey, just so you know, we want you to give a salvation message on, on, on Wednesday. I want, we want you to give the gospel on Wednesday. And he was like, oh, I typically talk about the gospel every time I preach. And they're like, ah, well, you know, maybe save it. He's like, yeah, okay. But then he just talks about Jesus. You, you can't not talk about Jesus. And there are those of us in this room who I know, and I, I think that you're followers of Jesus Christ, but this is something we need to be reminded of. For those of you who maybe haven't put your faith in Jesus, it is that simple. See him lifted up on the cross. He's the one that's gonna take the wrath that I deserve for my sin. Holy indignation. He takes it in a way that I can't. Jesus dies for my sin. And for every single person in here, Jesus wins the victory for us. It is finished. It's finished. Quit trying to earn it. Quit trying to do something to make your life worthy of the love of God. You can't. He loves, period. Every week at Lower Town, we take these elements. And this is symbolic of on the night that Jesus is about to betray, when he's having Passover meal with his disciples, that he takes a cup and he says, I'm going to pass this cup of juice around to you. And this cup represents my blood, which is poured out for you. It's a reversal of all the bloodshed of innocent animals. It's now going to be my blood. And so we, every single week at Hope Lower Town, we take this cup and we drink this cup to remember the cup that Jesus drank on our behalf. And all you have to do is be a follower of Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus, I'd love to partake in this meal with you today. You want to be a member of this church or any church for that matter, but if you're a follower of Jesus, you've been the knee to King Jesus, we'd love for you to partake of the juice that represents his blood that was shed for us and the wafer that represents his body that was broken for us. And we get to remember that he's the one that consumed the cup fully, completely. It is finished. There's nothing left of that. So we don't have to. It's a great exchange that we don't deserve. Let me pray and we'll continue worshiping through song as we partake of these elements this morning. Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for just our time in the word this morning. That again, before time even started, before it was even a thing, that you, in the perfect image of yourself, your son and your spirit, at your Trinity, you decided that this was going to happen. And you started to put things in motion. When the fullness of time had come, that you sent your son into this world to die, to save us from our sin, to save us from our unworthiness, so we might be free, be free from the law, be free from sin, so that when temptation comes, we can look temptation in the face. And we can say, no, you're not better. 
So God, I just pray now as we look and we think about the things in our life that are difficult, that are hard, to look at the cross and say, it is finished. You have put an end to this. And someday you're gonna put a complete end to all pain and all suffering. So God, we love you. We praise you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen.